The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Chaos is the new cocaine edition. It's Wednesday, November 6th, 2019. On today's show, Dolomite Is My Name is an Eddie Murphy vehicle. It's on Netflix and tells this uh, based on a true story story of Rudy Ray Moore, a black exploitation legend. And then Apple TV Plus is here announcing its outsized ambitions with The Morning Show, which stars Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, and Jennifer Aniston. Very A-list list there. And finally, the writers of Deadspin all walked out en masse pretty much. I guess it was in tranches, but, but the end effect is they've all walked out. Uh, when they were told to stick to sports uh, by their new owner, we discussed this with Tom Skoka, who in addition to being a Deadspin alumnus is the new political editor, or newish political editor at Slate. Um, joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, who is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, Dana Stevens, who's Slate's film critic. Hello, Stephen. Dolomite is My Name is uh, based on the true story of Rudy Ray Moore, a wannabe singer, actor, stand-up, who was reaching the absolute end of the showbiz line as an assistant in an LA record store when, through sheer chutzpah, charm, luck... I guess is part of it too, in early middle age, turned himself into a successful Chitlin Circuit comedian. He cut a hit comedy record as such, and then, more improbably really, self-financed his way to black exploitation stardom by creating a series of movies, a franchise, if you will, starring himself as Dolomite, an almost camp figure of macho puissance. I think it was about time the word puissance appeared on our, uh, on our podcast, and there it is. Those movies went on to make more into a legend, which has only been burnished since by the fact that the hip-hop community regards him as a kind of godfather. The movie's directed by Craig Brewer of Hustle and Flow fame, among other movies. It stars Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes, and Keegan-Michael Key. And it's just, a, I mean, it is a tremendous supporting cast. I think everyone who's seen it agrees at least on that. But let's listen to a clip. Hey, you know, Auntie? Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about maybe uh, putting out another record. Another record? Why don't you help me get rid of some of that shit that's stacked up over there in the corner? Another record. But this time I'm gonna put out a comedy record. Comedy? You've been a singer, you've been a, a shake dancer. At one time I think you even called yourself a fortune teller. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's real hard to break in. I do whatever it takes to get in. Is it gonna be like that? Cute little Bill Cosby, he's so sweet. He tells those family tales about the kids playing in the street. Playing Jackson, such I like that. Yeah, there's gonna be stories about family and kids and the oh, grandma and the grandpa. Oh, that's so, nice. So yeah, it's gonna be uh, stories. But listen, uh, here's what the thing is. I'm trying to be a little entrepreneurial on this one. Oh, let us bow our heads and pray. Father God, I want to thank you for giving me the strength to make this meal for my beloved family. And let us nourish our body in Jesus' name. Jesus Amen. 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 Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> all right then. Pork chop. Now, as I was saying. You want some hot sauce? Come on now, Auntie. Now, I want to be entrepreneurial on this thing, and I need you to loan me some money no, so I can get some no. recording equipment. <laughs> Eddie Murphy just makes me laugh. Thank you, Lord, for this pork chop. There's just timing as he gets that in. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good way in. Dana, what'd you make of this uh, movie? It's nothing if not an Eddie Murphy vehicle. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that I'm giggling at the at the clip gives you some idea. This movie is a total pleasure and joy to see, although I'm sort of glad I didn't have to review it because it's the kind of movie you don't like to look at the flaws of because it's giving you um, so much sort of sweetness and humanity and laughter and joy and dirty jokes, which we didn't hear in that clip. This movie, something that struck me in, in reading some of the production history of it is that it's written by the same writing team that wrote Ed Wood, however many years ago that was, more than 25 years ago. Uh, another movie movie about a bad director who joyously um, creates his terrible product. And it has a sort of a similar energy to that movie or maybe to The Disaster Artist from a couple of years ago about Tommy Wiseau's The Room. So it's in that tradition of, you know, the, the, the filmmaker working with no budget whatsoever, who, as you said, is just surely his chutzpah, his charm, his connections and kind of, you know, gum and, and tape holding it together. And that is a very charming genre that's pretty easy to please me with. But I will say that within that genre, it is a bit underachieving. It hits almost every beat you would expect it to at the moment you would expect it to. It only scratches the surface of the story of what must have been a more complicated man and a more complicated construction of a business than what we see on screen here. And though it has this great seat of your pants energy, and like you say, every single tiny role is stuffed with some great famous actor. I mean, there's just sort of like a, a, a huge stable of black talent here, even in the tiniest roles. Um, so, yeah, full of charm, but a little bit of a is that all there is kind of feeling from me. So good to see Eddie Murphy back, though. I mean, you know, just to see Eddie Murphy in front of a mic riffing, even as this character, it just it, it brings back the old days. And I'm really glad that he's doing it. I just wish that I could say, you know, this is one of the best movies of the year and it does everything it could possibly do with this material. And I don't think I would go that far. But as a showbiz biopic about a charming man made by an extremely charming man, yes, I would send people to see it. Um, he is tremendously good in that role. No doubt about it. Julia, what do you uh, what do you make of the movie? Oh, I think Dana is exactly right about how enjoyable this is to watch and about all of the questions it leaves you asking and uh, also about the strength of Eddie Murphy's performance. I mean, a bunch of things I would have liked from this movie. One, a little bit more context on where black exploitation was at the time. You know, the the movie sets up a number of scenes. There's kind of an amazing scene where... Um, Rudy Ray Moore goes out with a bunch of his friends to see the front page and the scene of their alienation at this very white product of Hollywood is striking, but it also suggests that they set out to make Dolomite because they don't see black people represented on film. And yet also we are to understand that the character in the film that they're making is this parody of black exploitation, which is a thriving genre. So that it's just like, wait, what, where, hmm? How, where does this slot into history? Um, which I recognize where does this slot into history may not be a fair question to ask of every film, but I did feel that a little bit more context there might've helped me understand what was achieved. And then I also thought that the, the how, Rudy Ray Moore feels about having to develop this particular character as his route to fame and about the kinds of stereotypes and and tropes that it's playing with as it is his ticket. There's not a ton of ambivalence or inquiry there. Um, there's a kind of one scene staring angrily at a childhood photo that suggests some kind of internal motivation for and, and, the, and the kind of hunger for achievement and making it in LA uh, that 
that begins to touch on it. But Eddie Murphy's performance is so great. I mean, it's funny and it's joyful and it's full of comic energy. But there's also a, a kind of guardedness in Eddie Murphy's persona that comes through in the sort of walled hurt of of Rudy Ray Moore that really works from a performance level, but also you just feel like you wish the movie were being more intentional with it. I, 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 yeah, see it, see it for, see it just to learn about this movie and see it because the performances are so great. But um, yeah, I found myself wishing it had been even more ambitious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, I really liked the movie. Um, and I'm not sure whether I liked it that much in spite of its lack of maybe ambition, what might be called ambition, or because of it, I kind of, there was part of me that thought it was an efficiently delivered biopic that was done with real brio, a brio that borrowed from the original subject, both the, you know, person of Moore and uh, his own creations, the actual Dolomite movies. Um, And uh, there is a little bit of great inflation because you're watching a feature film on your laptop it's netflix it is it is in theaters you can see it in theaters i saw it on my laptop and there is something about like the low commitment level um and just being delighted by it i think it takes no great inflation at all to say that murphy is tremendously good in this movie i think you both have hit on it it's calling up something quite deep and meaningful to him it correlates in some important way to his own experience as a black comedian and a black comedian who hit big with white audiences and what that might mean. The difference there, of course, is that Moore was sort of a minstrel act for a totally black audience. He, at least at first, was not attempting any kind of a crossover um, at all. And the bitterness and the hardness of... of um, I agree that there's something a little hidden about the bitterness and the hardness of reinventing himself as this super exaggerated figure. But there's an episode I don't want to lose sight of early on in the film that sets up the whole story, which is that one of his more unsavory tasks as an assistant record store clerk is an older homeless man routinely comes into the store uh, and causes a ruckus. And it's uh, Murphy's characters. It's Moore's job to boot him out of the store, which he doesn't love doing, but he does do it. This guy's a, a nuisance and perceived of as a nuisance. And at the beginning of the film, the guy comes in and he himself, this older black, he's called a hobo by Murphy and other people. He likes talking in naughty rhymes. He himself is sort of the Dolomite character, or at least is much closer to the origins of the folklore that produces this Dolomite character in the black community, which is then depicted in the movie as being highly developed in the oral tradition of the black homeless population that Moore then goes to and brings a bottle of, as he says, hooch and some money, and he sits down with a tape recorder, and there's this kind of oral tradition among this, you know, transient population of older black men um, uh, that um, he is kind of like, he's like a he's like a Harry Smith figure or something. He's taking this completely unmemorialized uh, piece of, um, of folk culture and he's learning to inhabit and exploit it in this kind of minstrelly way um, and monetize it. And I thought the movie was, it, that's a perfect example of how the movie knows exactly what's, what it's doing. It uses Murph, uh, the 
older character whose um, name a character's name I'm afraid I don't remember but the homeless man uses ironically semi-ironically the word folklore and yet it's underplayed enough you might almost forget that this is the origin of the whole turnaround that the Murphy character goes through and I felt like there were moments like that throughout the whole thing the other one I was going to identify is exactly that scene they enter the white mainstream world in, in order to go see the movie the front page and that it's incredibly funny and underplayed they don't they're just baffled that this white audience is in stitches over these, as they call them, sort of creaky old white actors, you know, coughing up these totally cornball jokes. But well, of course, the this... movie and the movie itself was a remake. The front page is, is a remake of the old comedy. So they really are watching recycled white culture from decades before. And that comes into the movie in other places as well, when sort of the the early material that uh, that Rudy Ray Moore is using is called vaudeville by one of his one yeah, of many people who turns sure. him down. Yeah. And there's just, sorry, I'll stop monologuing here, but there's just one more thing. In that scene, there's just a remarkable moment where Eddie Murphy is staring at the screen and both things are happening on his face. He's both he's both totally scornful of the product that he's watching up on the screen and he's completely mesmerized by its power over the audience and he just turns around and he looks back at the projection and he, and you you just feel that at that moment that he knows that movies are his destiny and it's not it's just not it's just not overplayed i thought that that was lovely i really like this movie i wouldn't want to oversell it but it is really really worth watching Dana um, Ingu, in her review of this movie, makes the astute point that Eddie Murphy's sort of always making a comeback, you know, in part because you just broke so big on Saturday Night Live in the early 80s and then Trading Places and obviously the Beverly Hills Cop movies. I mean, he was arguably the biggest or one of the, certainly the biggest comedic movie star, I would think, of the 80s. Um, he seems to have had a long afterlife that's... Um, you know, in which he's constantly being said to be making a huge comeback. But this one feels quite real. This is a great performance. Yeah, it feels like there's more of his creative vision behind this one. Even though he didn't direct it, it feels like he is the, the Rudy Ray Moore of this uh, of, of this production. Um, Rudy Ray Moore also did not direct his own films, but was obviously the the vision behind their behind their particular uh, idiosyncratic weirdness. Um I mean, I guess to me in the intervening years, Eddie Murphy has become kind of a family filmmaking guy, right? I mean, he's after his period that you talked about in the 80s, sort of the the big blazing of his, his creative star, he started to appear in family movies and, you know, wearing a fat suit and being sort of almost a, a Disney figure in, in movies, which he plays very well because he's a big, broad performer. This is the first thing I've cared to see him in a while because it feels like it's something more specific to his vision. This doesn't feel like something that someone put him in, but something that he wanted to make happen from the ground up. And so, and in in the sense that that echoes the character's journey, that makes it something worth seeing. But I I think it's not really using his full talent, honestly. I think Aisha mentioned this. Aisha Harris wrote for the New York Times an interesting, not a review of the movie, but sort of a reflection on the original Dolomite and on black exploitation. One of the points that she makes, I think, is that Eddie Murphy's full range as a performer is not really called upon by this movie. And there's these brief moments. She mentions a moment when somebody kind of makes fun of his physique. He's called Doughy by one of the uh, the many producers who, t- who turns down his, his movie pitch. And uh, and she talks about how there's just this brief moment of pain that flickers across his face. I think feel like the movie should explore more the the insecurity, you know, the uh, the uncertainty, the fear of failure that that drove this man who, you know, as we heard in that clip, was willing to do do anything to be famous. And uh, since being famous has been a part of Eddie Murphy's life for decades, it just seems like an exploration of fame that has something more to it than 
we're going to put on a show in a barn would be something that Eddie Murphy could pull off. And although I think he's great and should be recognized for this performance, I also hope that vehicles will come along or he will create vehicles that call on all of those registers of performance. Julia Turner, um, the word is that you're the entertainment editor of the paper of uh, the company town um, known as Hollywood slash Los Angeles. Uh, So I'm going to ask you a kind of blunt and um, uh, lowbrow question. Is Eddie Murphy going to get an Oscar uh, nod here? I think there's a lot of interest in in that idea. I mean, it's all still coalescing and there are a lot of strong male performances this year, you know, Antonio Banderas we saw last week, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, we, you know, th- th- pick pick over the movies we've talked about the last few weeks, and there's more to come with The Irishman and all sorts of other things we'll be discussing. But uh, no, I mean, I think there's also just so much warmth for Eddie Murphy and the role he's had in the culture and in Hollywood that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a nomination. And I would be excited if it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I second that totally. Dana, you want to weigh in? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm all for him being recognized, but I would hope again that that recognition leads to you know a real Eddie Murphy resurgence, where he gets to do all kinds of things, whether it's straight dramatic roles or more stand-up pictures or anything he wants to do. Mm. All right. Well, I I really like this movie. I just like being told this story, which I didn't know. Dolomite is my name. It's really kind of super charming. Check it out on Netflix in the theater. Moving on. Before we uh, go any further, Dana, now is when we do uh, some business, talk business. I'm sure we have some. What do you got? Yeah, well, you know what our business is. In fact, this is our last week to plug our live shows next week. Crazy. In Los Angeles and Vancouver. They're happening. They're about to happen. Um, That'll be next Wednesday, November 13th in Los Angeles. We'll be at the Barnsdall Gallery at Barnsdall Art Park. And everybody who comes to that L.A. show, because the size of the venue and the the layout of the venue permits it, is invited to the after party where you can hang out and talk with us over tacos, beer, and wine. So free food, booze, and a party, and us in Los Angeles on November 13th. Two days later, we'll be in Vancouver at the Granville Island stage. And you can find out more about both of those shows and get your tickets at slate.com slash live. I really hope people will turn out. I'm excited to do both shows. Also, in Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about Deadspin and the demise of Deadspin. One of our topics today was talking to Tom Skoka, Slate's new political editor and an alum of that site, as well as its parent site, Gawker, its original parent site. We had such a great conversation with him, and Tom is just such a fascinating, I mean, he's just one of the minds that I've loved following for the past decade in media. And he has so much to say about Deadspin, what it meant, what its demise has meant, that it spun off into a second segment. So if you want to hear that segment, which includes breaking news coming off the ticker that happened during our taping of the podcast about the developing Deadspin story, you can subscribe to Slate Plus. If you want to hear that segment and more segments like it in the future, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our magazine's membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And in exchange for that, you get ad-free versions of every Slate podcast and lots of other wonderful benefits, including whole shows that you can't listen to without joining Slate Plus. So if you want to explore all the offerings behind the Slate Plus paywall, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join today. All right, Steve, what's next? The morning show is the first big tentpole from Apple TV+. Plus. They went big with both cast and concept here. Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell are network morning show co-hosts. They've been together for 15 years, and as the script never tires of telling us, they wake America up as the country's symbolic mommy and daddy. Only trouble has arrived in the form of a series of Me Too accusations against Carell's character based a little, obviously, maybe, on Matt Lauer, a little uh, topically on the nose. What follows is a palace intrigue backstage procedural filled with Sorkin-esque walk-and-talks. Uh, the show also stars Reese Witherspoon, 
as the All About Eve newcomer, plus the tragically underfamiliar, underutilized by all of show business, Billy Crudup, a huge fan of his work. I'm glad to see him in this. Let's listen to a clip. Three. Two. Start your move. Cue her. Good morning. I'm bringing you some sad and upsetting news. Mitch Kessler, my co-host and partner of 15 years, was fired today for sexual misconduct. All right, stay strong. First and foremost, I want to offer our sympathy and support to the women. We are devastated that this happened on our watch, and our hearts are with you. And to you at home, I understand how you must be feeling, because I and the whole team here at The Morning Show are feeling the same way. Shock, disappointment, disbelief. She saw me under the bus. And while I don't know the details of the allegations, I understand that they were serious and that keeping Mitch on was not an option. I don't think we need to watch any more of this. Uh, let's Do prep not you for your touch s- that remote. Do not touch that remote, Dana. Um, there's a lot of portentous music in this uh, show. May sweeps are looming after all. What'd you make of it? Actually, the music is big name too. Carter Burwell did the music. There's nobody who's not a brand who's who's attached to the show. Apple really threw out the money to to get this thing together. Um, You know, I agree with Slate's own Willa Paskin on this. She said something that uncannily captured how I felt about it in her her piece on not just the morning show, but all of the new offerings from Apple TV. She was just essentially saying that, you know, seeing all the problems with this this show, she just still found it irresistible watching and that she, here's one bit, I'm here for an Aniston and Witherspoon show that contains two or three cockamamie speeches about the state of media per episode. I mean, it is a little bit Sorkin light. You're right that there are a lot of um, speeches that hit the theme that they're trying to hit directly on the nose and lots of walking and talking tensely in hallways with, you know, scraggly producers drinking caffeine out of cups that don't really seem to have any coffee in them. There, There is all of that. But I watched all three of the available hours of this and would happily watch more in spite of the fact that I think in general, this Apple TV service seems very ill-conceived. None of the other shows seem like to have been appealing or well-reviewed. I found the interface to be glitchy AF and was barely able to get the thing to run. It was buffering <laughs> constantly, which for someone who's bought you know thousands of dollars of Apple products over the course of my life did not make me feel good toward the company. It's also a very scanty list of offerings. I think there's, what, four or five total shows, including this one, and only this one seems to be getting any traction whatsoever. So the idea that they're going to get $5 a month out of me just because they're doing one okay show makes me angry. But at the same time, I'm going to pay for it long enough to see all 10 episodes of this show. I admit it because <laughs> Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, they're, and they're saying snappy things to each other on air. And, uh, and I actually find this show topically uninteresting. I mean, what it tries to do with, as you say, the the political moment and the timeliness of Me Too, in so much as it tries to spend time on that or even on the Steve Carell character, it seems like it's just checking off boxes. But when it's doing workplace drama, honestly, when it's sort of Mark Duplass as the loyal but bedraggled uh, producer to Jennifer Aniston's character are really strong. Um, Or when it's following Reese Witherspoon, who's this kind of libertarian spitfire who they find at a small southern TV station and rope into the show to replace Steve Carell after he leaves. Uh, I love those scenes just as a workplace drama. I'll put it that way. As a workplace drama, I think 
this show works pretty well. And I think Jennifer Aniston is incredible. I really hope she gets some Emmy attention for this character she plays, who is this completely placid morning show smiley type on the surface, but is a secret addict, you know, is barely uh, keeping up decent relationships with her family, is you know, almost 100% that bitch when she's off camera, Mm. but yet is this really, as Jennifer Aniston can do, is this really lovable person that you're invested in. So I don't know. I mean, I I feel like it's my weakness to admit this, but I like the morning show. Um, Julia, let's not bury bury the lead here. Uh, Dana used the expression AF, channeling her (laughs) inner millennial. Uh, What'd you make of the show? Okay. Having hate watched, I think, every minute of the newsroom, although at a kid's birthday party this weekend, a friend of mine described the actual final episode of the newsroom to me, which apparently involves like an impromptu bluegrass concert at Sam Waterston's funeral. And I was like, wait, I'm not sure I ever actually saw that because it sounds so ludicrous. But anyway, as someone who hate watched every second of the newsroom and just felt like full of Um, admiring condescension for Aaron Sorkin's at this point, very familiar brand of highfalutin, witty, self-righteous, I'm smarter than everybody, chit-chat. Watching this show really made me miss Aaron Sorkin. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hate, love, watch this too, even though when they give self-righteous speeches about the media, they're not even smart. They're just like, journalism matters. It's journalism, <laughs> like the number of times, quote unquote, capital J, like it's just the Dumbo version of the self-righteous Aaron Sorkin speech, which it turns out is worse than the incredibly um, ludicrously, uh, unrealistically erudite version of it. Um, and yet, I think the performances here are so compelling. And I agree 100% about Jennifer Aniston, who... I mean, she's sort of playing a similar character to Rachel, which is like a spoiled sad sack. She has everything and she's miserable and she makes that so charming. And it's really hard to do. I don't know how she does that. And and Reese Witherspoon, too. I actually find Reese Witherspoon's character a, a bigger stretch for her because Reese Witherspoon also often plays someone who's tightly wound and has a lot and makes you love her anyway. And here she's she's playing sort of like a hard scrabble, coal country um you know, mountain woman. And she still just looks like Reese Witherspoon, like she fell out of a locket, you know, Uh, (laughs) and they make her, they make her hair like a little bit wispy at the beginning. Um, But, you know, like imagine that character played by like Laura Dern or someone who's got a bit more craggy raffishness to her, you know, but I I mean, I, Reese Witherspoon is an amazing actress too. And the, and watching those two bounce off of each other is really fun. Also really enjoy Mark Duplass, who is like not who I would hire to produce my morning show and does not have morning show producer energy generally as a performer and watching somehow that really works because he seems out of his depth and not in command uh, in a way that I enjoy other performances that are great. Billy Crudup as like a maniacal supervillain just like plopped into the corporate offices is hilarious. Um, And I actually think, I mean, I'm curious. I also will watch the rest of the show. I think. And uh, I, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with the Steve Carell character. In the first couple episodes, it feels a bit tacked on. And, you know, Matt Lauer Light is like storming around his house thinking about, you know, how what he did isn't really so bad as what other people did. But there's a really interesting scene 
where he's hanging out with Martin Short playing another disgraced Me Too man and trying desperately to suggest that what he did and his abuse is different and fine compared to some other folks. And I know much has been made in the media of why are we even curious about how these men feel and why do we care? Like, I care. It seems really interesting that these people who are so entitled and thought they were playing by one set of rules suddenly feel like the world has changed around them. Like that is inherently dramatically interesting. And uh, I think that what the show and Steve Carell similarly is like such a sympathetic performer who we, we fell in love with him. It's this show like remixes all their past personas. We fell in love with him for playing a bad, basically abusive boss doing stuff that's probably should be illegal uh, who had no clue that it, that it should be. And I'm not sure the Steve Carell character in The Office ever had that reckoning. But watching him, if the show persists in his exploration of efforts at self-understanding, self-justification and redemption, I kind of think that can be dramatically great. So, yeah, dumb but good. Smart but good. <laughs> ah! Dumb but good. Oh, my God. I uh, I can't wait to hate not watch the rest of this. Um my level of interest going <laughs> my level of interest going into the people who wake us up at three AM to deliver morning chat was zero. It's now less than zero. Um this is Sorkin minus minus, I thought. I wrote in my notes forty minutes in, we finally get a good and interesting scene. I, I did think it was pretty good when Crudup, who's just really is one of my favorite actors since I saw him in uh, Arcadia, um at Lincoln Center, just an unbelievable I saw that same uh, production, Steve, and he was yes, fantastic in it. I mean, you couldn't walk out of that room not madly in love with both him and the actress who played the young woman i can't remember her name but it was it was just a, it was a magical evening but um he says he makes this point where uh, to that point you don't know how sinister he is and he just is so elfin and sumptuous you you think maybe he's not but he says in this silky smooth voice you know the internet's going to change television news it already has and the on the internet people are getting um something that uh uh, the, people are getting their news on the internet. They now need a different form of comfort or reassurance um, from their news. We're not really, I mean, he's sort of saying we're just not news anymore. The internet's changed who we are. And then he makes this point about her, which is that if America thought that they were mommy and daddy, well, daddy just died. She's now a kind of widow. And Crudup just delivers the line of the episode. He says, and nobody wants to see a widow get fucked. And at that moment, you you know, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's the wick, you know, he's going to be one of the wicked uh, people here. It's just a palace intrigue about a palace that I don't care about um, at all. I think it's incredibly, incredibly simplistically overdrawn. Um, and um, I, the satire to me just doesn't land in any way. Um, I think the kind of overall gesture of shows like this is lost on a viewer like me, which is to say there are these billboards that we all live with. They're part of the common public landscape of all of our imaginations. And they involve the people who do the morning shows. They involve Oprah. They involve movie stars. They involve the cinematic universe. And then there's this kind of entertainment product that you can make which goes behind them and humanizes these kind of unhuman or even anti-human larger than life uh, figures and I just think that can be brilliant but it's often a form of laziness that the tiniest bit tiniest bit of chiaroscuro suddenly is taken to be, be this dramatic gesture oh my god what it would it be, what would it be like to set your alarm for 3 a.m and on it's I, I unless you're doing something really unexpected with that concept um i'm uninterested and i have to say dana i mean there is i were there it's delicious i understand that it's delicious in its own way but it's totally unsurprising 
I mean, I don't know what to say, Steve, except that I I just I think I do. There is some part of me that cares about Jennifer Aniston having to hit her button at 3.30 in the morning and the fact that she lives this vampiric, bizarre life. I mean, have you ever been on a morning show? Or, Julia, have you? Have you ever done a guest spot on oh, one of the early man. morning talk Pull, shows? Pulling rank here. I no, love no. it. No, no. It's not a question of pulling rank. Like, I have done five-minute segments on the CBS sure, morning sure. show a few times. And I, and I was just going to say that I always say yes when they ask me. And they often invite me for the day after Thanksgiving because they typically have a holiday movies segment on that morning. And I guess that's, you know, when their audience starts wants to start hearing about, about movies for the season. So for some bizarre reason, although it pays nothing, I've agreed several times to wake up extremely early, <laughs> not as early as the host, but very early for me on the day after a big holiday and, you know, go into a studio and sit behind a desk and talk to, you know, people that are going to ask me the most superficial questions possible about the year's movies, basically because I love seeing the show get put together. It's just fascinating to go in and see this huge humming barn, you know, with rolling mics and booms and, you know, makeup and microphone men buzzing around and everything coming together in real time live with the commercial breaks. It's just fun to watch them put it together. And it's kind of a mystery that each person has their play and this whole machine somehow functions. Mm. And so having even just had that experience a few times as, as a random person sitting on a, in a chair for five minutes, I am curious about how they put these shows together and about the fact that a whole swath of the country that is, does not include me or most people I know depend on those shows and have them on every morning as they you know get their kids out the door for school and themselves out the door for work. I don't think that this show delves particularly deeply into the sociology of those shows or certainly the audience of them. And it is sort of a glitzy workplace drama that just goes behind those scenes. But I think they're kind of interesting scenes to go behind. So kill me. Mm. <laughs> That's de- That was definitely the stakes. That's definitely the <laughs> argument Steve was making. <laughs> Dana should be executed because she cares about morning TV. <laughs> take, me um, to, take me to the chopping block. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 just a workplace. Like, I don't think you have to care about which work they're doing. It's like any workplace. I mean, I, as someone what? who just is interested in work, and and also, I mean, it's all of its energy is spent selling the glamour of this universe. Oh, can you believe the assistants have assistants and their assistants have assistants, and there's a team as that assembles around each one of these major players in order to think through the nuances of it. It's like, come on, of course, it's selling you on this. It's not any work. It's not a butcher. It's not a fucking tuna canning factory. It's a morning show. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would watch Jennifer Aniston and All About Eve with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon at the Tuna Canning Factory and Billy Crudup as the as the evil floor factory foreman. Um, Mop up that tuna w- blood, Jennifer. <laughs> so that's about the level of the writing here, by the way. It, the writing really is. I don't understand how the performances can be so good and the writing so. Just I kept there. Just every single line was like guffaw worthy, um, down to and including Billy Crudup screaming through the closing doors of an elevator with a maniacal Joker esque grin. Hey, us! It's the new cocaine. Which <laughs> like what? Are you, what show are you even on? Oh my god! I, I would pay so much money for us to have had John Dickerson on the show and for him to say chaos. It's the new cocaine. I mean, the Tuna least blood. corruptible. I mean, really, honestly, the least corruptible human being I've ever met in my life. John Dickerson was kind of the angel on my shoulder while I watched this. It's like just saying, "It's dude, it's nothing like this." I mean, come on. <laughs> I sit there, I read the fucking teleprompter, I go home. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we agree to disagree. It's the morning show, and it's on Apple Plus. Let's uh, let's move along. Deadspin was a creation of Gawker Media, a site that was to sports what Gawker was, I suppose, maybe analogously to celebrity news, tough, funny, cynical, know-it-all, and very voice and sensibility driven, not at all limited, in other words, to its ostensible subject matter. Gawker, of course, was litigated out of existence. The site was then bought by Univision, then sold to a private equity shop. At that point, you might have well have thought... The writing was on the wall. We're joined now by Tom Skoka, a veteran of Deadspin, and now the political editor of Slate. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to have you. There obviously was a specific incident that essentially uh, led to all of the staffers eventually exiting the site, um, which was that they reported on its new owner. Uh, what was this incident? Why did it lead to everyone leaving? And uh, what do we make of it? Well, I mean, there were, there were a series of incidents. There was the um, there was the initial publication of a piece that sort of looked at the ownership um, that had come on and looked at their their hiring practices and their culture and was just sort of a, a you know a business media reporting story about the hand that fed them or considered itself to be feeding them. So that was um, in the eyes of the people who owned the company a bad thing. But what happened was that the editor in chief Megan Greenwell. Uh, found herself in ever worsening relations with the with the bosses and eventually just decided to resign and went out uh, with her you know as she resigned she published an extremely good extremely well argued piece about the sort of toxic dynamic between these people who had come on to a successful publication and were trying to ignore uh, what the staff knew about what worked and what didn't work and were just sort of issuing diktats without any particular um, underlying knowledge of how the thing worked. Um, and so after she left, things seemed to have quieted down. Um, and then there was, a, then there came two things sort of simultaneously. One of them across all the sites in the company, uh, which was that one of the things that Megan Greenwell had pointed out and one of the things that everyone was upset about was that they were running um, hyper-aggressive ad campaigns uh, in ways that sort of damaged the site's um, visibility in Google and that just sort of made the reading experience terrible. Well, they had autoplay ads with the sound coming on, right? right. Which and every then, internet user knows is a horrible scourge. Right. And then so finally they had done this. They had, they had brought in this ad campaign where there were aggressive, blaring autoplay ads. And so all the sites ran a post that said, look, we're really sorry about this. We don't control it. We know it's bad. Here are the people you should talk to about this if you want to lodge a complaint. And um, management took all those posts down. Um, Whether they followed the terms of the uh, collective bargaining agreement or not about that is a little bit unclear. There's supposed to be a process uh, whereby editorial is able to defend itself. um, And there has to be a, a formal vote about taking a post down. And I heard conflicting reports about whether there'd even been such a a vote. But again, also just that whole structure was put in place um, with the idea that whoever was the um, editorial director was going to be someone who had editorial's interest at heart. And when the editorial director is a stooge, then then this particular layer of protection doesn't really work. So anyway, those posts were taken down. And at the same time, very arbitrarily, for like no discernible reason, uh, they... The, the editorial director sent out a memo to Deadspin telling them to stick to sports, um, which had been this message that they'd been 
been being given, um, you know, and they had largely ignored it um, and continued producing the stuff that the readers of Deadspin want to read, which is mostly sports, but includes a wide range of other things. Um, and so in response to that memo, at this moment of tension, uh, Deadspin published a whole bunch of posts that had nothing to do with sports. And they grabbed uh, Barry Pachesky, the acting editor, out of a meeting and took him away and fired him. And in response to that, over the next day or a few days, the rest of the staff just quit. Right. Something like 20 people, right? Quit in, a, in the space yeah. of 48 hours. There's no one there. There's just the editorial director is haplessly throwing up extremely poorly prepared sports blog posts to try to fill the empty space. I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, this this is in a decade of sad media news and media cataclysms. I think this Deadspin um, devolution is one of the darkest and weirdest and saddest. It's not just a place running out of money and becoming worse as it runs out of money and then eventually having to fire a bunch of people, which is the normal sad, bad story. This is a place that had a thriving voice and audience and maybe face some business model issues. But, you know, it's just it's all a descendant of the attack on Gawker um, by Peter Thiel and Charles Harder. And so it's it's one of the weird, dark, bad, specific media stories, as opposed to one of the normal, dark, depressing media stories. However, it is not as anomalous as the Gawker story, because we are experiencing it in the same you know, year or two when Sports Illustrated has also found itself passed along like a hot potato to the point where now a third of its staff has been fired by a brand that wants to turn it into like a, you know, user-generated content fan site uh, or set of team fan sites. Uh, And also when ESPN has taken a lot of flack for telling its you know, reporters and on-air commentators to quote-unquote stick to sports, maybe not in so many words, but uh, suggesting that too much attention was being paid to Colin Kaepernick and his protests. Um, you know, there was a recent flap reported by Laura Wagner of Deadspin uh, about the memo within ESPN suggesting that uh, actually explaining what the heck was the controversy about ch- China and the Hong Kong protests in the NBA was something that reporters couldn't do on ESPN, the news network. So there's also a broader set of threads in sports media right now about what sports media is and is for and what its economics are. And so that I'm curious, Tom, what you think of that. Like, to what degree is this an anomalous media disaster? And to what degree is it a representative media disaster? Well, I think what's horrible is the intersection of the anomalous and the representative. Um, Because as you as you say, correctly, and as, as you know, I, as those of us who went through the whole Gawker media experience are always um, looking out for, this would not have happened without Peter Thiel intentionally destroying Gawker. Gawker was a successful, Gawker Media, it was a successful and profitable business. And it was, um, you know, it didn't stop the underlying, even as the, even though the online ad market was worse than it had been, um, you know, Gawker was still making money and it seemed like it was going to keep on making money indefinitely. And it failed as a business because someone used unimaginably large financial resources specifically for the purpose of destroying its business. So, you know, that threw Deadspin out into the wilderness. Um, and it left Deadspin as, you know, a failed 
business that needed some other business model to come in and rescue it. Instead of somebody saying, well, look, this worked and it can work again. We just need to sort of let it run and let the people who knew what they were doing do it. Um, you know, so the fact that Deadspin was in these people's hands uh, was a direct result of the effort to destroy Gawker Media. Um, and then because it's in these people's hands and because what was this tremendously hopeful model of, you know, an independent family of websites having been built up into something that had a passionate readership, that made a meaningful cultural difference, that, you know, reached people and made money, right? This thing was built and then it was destroyed for reasons extrinsic to its um, operating fundamentals. But, you know, all that registered was that here was a, a busted business that needed someone to rescue it. And so, you know, in place of that model that worked, uh, Deadspin became subject to the various idiotic models that are also afflicting other publications where people think that there are ways to scam the readers or, you know, make them, I don't know, micro-targeted viral sites for particular fan bases or just, you know, run a spam factory. Um, and so that became the agenda instead of continuing this tradition of good, effective, and once profitable work. That was what really struck me in all the coverage of this this disaster is that the the vultures who seized hold of Deadspin seem to have so completely misinterpreted the metrics, the publishing metrics that that would that were actually allowing the magazine to thrive or would permit it to, to thrive in the future. In other words, their claim was we're going to get so many more clicks if we cover only sports, when in fact it was precisely the breadth of Deadspin's vision and the ability of its writers to be versatile and to bring politics into sports, right, to bring uh, you know racial justice into sports, talking about Colin Kaepernick, that got people to the site. And I know as a reader who's a complete I mean, I'm just utterly uh, sports indifferent and follow no sport at all. The two reasons I went to Desbin were to read David Roth, who I think is the best writer on Trump in the Trump era. Just fantastic writing. I really want to send people there, presuming that they left his posts up at all. And wherever he lands is very lucky to get him. And also to watch Greg Popovich videos because he talks about politics with incredible intelligence. Right. So I'm an example of an utterly sports allergic person who loved two things about that site. And I can't be the only person like that. They were depending on traffic like that. And uh, and Jim Spanfeller, this, the CEO of the company that bought Deadspin, seems to have not grasped that basic yeah, premise at all. at all. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, um, the, the post that Megan Greenwell went out on, I, I think that the, the headline on it was the adults in the room. And that's the thing, that this is driven by this weird mythology where they look at the, you know, poorly dressed, uh, irregularly appearing in the office, people who make these blog posts and they see them using swear words on the internet some, and they think that the problem is that these people aren't serious, you know? And this this is like, this goes all way back through the whole Gawker experience. People never, people thought that there was something immature about the company. And the fact was that you know, people forget that the other part of the Gawker mythology was the big board, right? The giant leaderboard in the office showing which posts were getting read. Everyone who worked there had been in this, um, you know, we misused Darwinian for so many political purposes, but like 
this Darwinian competition to give readers what they wanted to read and to like find a way to do meaningful work that would be widely read and effective and that would make money for the advertising department. I mean, so everyone was very serious about the business. Everyone was very serious about doing journalism in a way that would be sustainable and that would work uh, as a business. And these people came in and this guy, yeah, this guy, Jim Spanfowler is like, he, he was trying to run scams that were scams 10 years ago, right? He, he had been at Forbes like a decade in the past, Forbes.com, not Forbes, um, when they were still separate things. And, you know, the, uh, apparently the first thing he did was he said, well, we got to do slideshows to get more page views. That doesn't work. That's been, that game has been gamed out and it, it doesn't raise traffic. And everything that he had like that was just dumb, scammy concepts that the business had moved way past. So these guys literally did not know what they were doing. But they're old guys. They're, you know, they've made a lot of money and they think that they understand what business is. And so they think that they're the serious ones when they're basically you know, they're like live action role playing their jobs. They're just performing business. That's why they're sending out these memos because they're just like, this is what a businessman does. He tells the underlings to to get it together. He informs them that they need to focus on uh, the you know on the the core competencies of the business, which are writing about sports for sports people. Like it's just it's dead wrong, and the the writers knew it, and the readers know it. Part of what's been amazing is that i mean yesterday in a in a spasm of of insecurity um they tried to delete all of the public blogs uh, the, you know the individual personal blogs that were hosted on the kinja platform which is the not just the publishing system but you know when nick denton had kinja built for gawker media the idea was that he wanted to build like the next generation of commenting and he wanted public input. And so there's like, there are a lot of people who are using this platform for blogging and he was just going to kill all of these things because, uh, one of the things that happened, um, was that, uh, Emma Carmichael, uh, former editor, uh, from Gawker and Deadspin, the former editor in chief of Jezebel, um, wrote a blog post on her personal Kinja blog. Jim, Jim Spanfeller is a herb and it's just a bunch of pictures of Jim Spanfeller saying, you know, look at this herb. What a herb. Look, drinking Amstel Light, the beer for herbs. And because Kinja is integrated with all the, the sites, that post went on the big board. That post was getting more readership than the stuff that the, that the sites were publishing. And they just flipped their wigs about this. And at one point in the panic and the meltdown, they were going to just wipe out all these blocks. I mean, I I don't even know how much content is out there on the on people's individual sites. There's like lot lots of people built these little things there. And they just were gonna unilaterally nuke it all to spare Jim Spanfeller a little embarrassment. It's very Trumpian. I mean, it's an, it's almost incredible how close the analogy is to the incompetence of that management style and this sort of burn it all and salt the ground approach and uh, and what is happening in the White House right now. Yeah, I mean, they just, they are, they are wrong and nothing makes them matter than being told that they're wrong. Well, I was just going to say that as soon as you hear the words private equity, you know that something is dead, that it's on borrowed time. I mean, the, you know, Tom, the idea that, that the adults in the room are now the private equity guys is 
terrifying. They have a 40-year track record of, I mean, private equity has gone by different names depending on the latest fad or the way in which it's self-stigmatized, you know, so it has to come up with a new moniker for itself. But but in essence, private equity is specialized in value destruction for 40 years. And um, I think you got it exactly right. There's something about the live action role-playing of the attitudes of a business person that doesn't redound to the, you know, disbenefit of the person who's doing it ever, right? Like maybe in the short term it does, but never even in the medium term. And um, it's just that it's playing out in the super public way with Deadspin is just remarkable. Right. What's baffling too about it, right, is that what I don't even really get about what they're doing, maybe there's, some, you know, some financial instrument that's going to work out for them. But when the people do this to to newspapers, right? When the when the private equity people destroy a newspaper, they can. There's usually like a newspaper building which sits on downtown real estate that they can liquidate, and there's like there's a supplier base. There are people. There's a subscriber base. I mean, sorry. There's people who are paying for subscriptions, and they have, you know, they're gonna their money's gonna keep coming in for a while, even as the product gets worse and worse. Um, but. And so you know, so there, you have a you have time where you can cut costs and still get the money in and and show like an increase in profitability, but on a website, um, there's the readers and there's the writers, and you know they drove off all the writers and found themselves at war with the readers because the readers aren't dumb. You know, I mean, twenty million people a month read Deadspin and they go there because they know what Deadspin is. They don't go there because they got algorithmically tricked into clicking on you know the Notre Dame game wrap up. So, you know, and that's part of what the Kinja Purge was, right? Part they, they were upset about these people who were loyal enough readers of the former Gawker Media site system that they had their own platforms within it that they used. You know, so they're, I don't know, if, if you get rid of the readers and you get rid of the writers, you, you don't have anything. I mean, you have a brand, but like the brand is constituted by people's interest in reading it. So... I don't even see like what there was to extract. This is just a pure act of destruction. But I will say that's the one part of this morality tale that's satisfying is that it because it happened so quickly, because it really was, I mean, almost cinematic, right? That w- within 48 hours, the entire staff had quit, that there is a sense that these guys are just left holding an empty bag now. You know, I mean, it's it's tragic that all these people lost their jobs and now have to find a place in this horrible media landscape we're in. But at least it's kind of satisfying the comeuppance that the ownership got. Right. If they'd half destroyed it, they could have, you know, maybe successfully run some scams and kept, you know, kept traffic coming. Um, but they just they just totally smashed it. All right. Well, um, Tom Skoka, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, psyched that you're now part of Slate. Uh, we, I think, all have been big fans of your work for a long time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks. Happy to be here in the small sense and in the in the broader Slate sense. All right. Now's the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, my endorsement this week is a throwback to our discussion last week. Remember how for Slate Plus we talked about uh, Scorsese and company versus Marvel? And uh, and we were talking about it at the time in the guise of, oh, we're too late. We're too late to this. It all happened a week ago. But we still have something to say about this strange online feud between auteur directors and comic book superhero fans. 
But in fact, we were not too late. We were too early because last night, just as I was getting the stuff ready for this show to record, Barton Scorsese himself published an op-ed in The New York Times about this whole flap. And uh, this is kind of an obvious place to point people because if you're anywhere near my orbit of film Twitter, this has already been in your eyeballs for a day. But in case you missed Martin Scorsese's op-ed, it's entitled, I said Marvel movies aren't cinema. Let me explain. And it's just... It's so beautiful. It's the furthest thing from being a kind of salvo in the culture wars. You know, it's not at all a sort of um, placement of himself in opposition to, to some cultural sector. It really is just this beautiful pian. Is that how you say that word? Like this this uh, elegy to the cinematic universe that he sees as disappearing and as being pressed off the screen by, you know, the, the financial power of these franchise blockbuster movies. And uh it's just a, it's just a gorgeous little reflection from a man who, you know, we might forget sometimes is a wonderful writer. I mean, he's a part of creating all of the characters in the movies that he's made. You know, he's not just behind a camera. He's a guy who thinks about words and I'm sure reads all the time and uh, and just has composed this this beautiful op-ed that really steps outside of the argument and creates this kind of third term, you know, not sort of doubling down on his harsh words, but um, but just thinking in a, in a grander sense about what cinema has meant and what it could mean in the future with the pressure of streaming and blockbusters and, you know, global reach and all of those things. So mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese in The New York Times, please read him. Yeah, the, I'm glad you pointed to that. I thought it was marvelous and a clean, you know, code to our conversation. Uh, Julia, what do you, what do you got? I've got a log roll today, but it's a really good log roll, so uh, I'm just not even going to apologize for it. Uh, Here at the LA Times, we launched a podcast last week uh, called This is California, and our first little mini documentary within it is called The Battle for 187. It's from a really terrific reporter here called Gustavo Arellano, and it's about the history of Prop 187, which was... Uh, you know, a ballot initiative here in California that suggested that illegal immigrants should not um, have access to any public services, uh, should should not be able to go to public schools, should not be able to get care in emergency rooms, et cetera. Um, and Gustavo was a public school student and the son of um, someone who had come here without documents. Uh, and he reports out this fight and talks to some people who were huge advocates of the ballot initiative, but from the perspective of someone whose life was cast into uncertainty and whose political awakening kind of came because of this incredible moment when all of California was screaming about the quote unquote invasion of quote unquote illegals. Um, You know, there's audio of a interview with Pete Wilson, the governor at the time, um, which had an ominous man voice saying, they're coming. Uh, And it just has so many interesting resonant echoes with the politics of today. And it's really beautifully told story. So uh, the podcast is called This is California from Gustavo Arellano. um, And I send our listeners to it. Um, Completely unoriginally, I'm going to endorse the new Angel Olsen record called All Mirrors. Uh, She's just, she's just amazing. She's been amazing for a long time. She's making great records. She went in the new and interesting and very dreamy dream pop direction with the latest record. Uh, I've listened to it only a couple of times, but it's just dark and deep and echoey and not what I expected from her. It's almost, I mean, she's just nothing like Billie Eilish, but it's kind of, I don't know, or, or Lana Del Rey. I mean, she, that's what kind terrible. of music did she make before? I mean, I think of Angel Olsen, and I don't want to be wrong about this, but I think of her as kind of an alt country 
you know, superstar in the making, like indie su- indie level superstar in the making. I mean, just a really, really rough and tough songwriter, you know, really tensile sensibility, but with kind of folk and and um and country, uh, absolutely laying down the like the DNA, you know, l- l- layer uh, upon which everything is built. And I hear so much less of that in this. This is more echoey and grandiose and cinematic which is just not i mean she was so on the verge and all she needed to do was sort of repeat herself with slightly better production values and she would have bumped up a level inevitably in stardom and deservedly so and instead she did something really different like like kind of torch song you know with like a kind of la noir i mean it's it's you know uh, she's just emerged as a very different kind of uh, figure. I mean, sort of the same. I mean, she's such a distinctive singer and songwriter. It's it's not in any uh, you know it's not a it's not a total identity shift at all. Uh, but it's it just is a it's a different kind of um, music for her. It's super atmospheric and very beautiful, and it's just a terrific record. So highly recommended. And then I very very strongly want to recommend. You know anything Anne Enright, the um, Irish novelist, writes is uh, is uh, a wallop packing um, and brilliant. And her diary for the London Review of Books about Me Too and where Me Too has come is uh, is unbelievable. People just you just have to read it. I mean, just paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. It's a it's a it's both a pummeling and um, a work of surgery, um, which I think characterizes a lot of what she does. I I just love her as a writer. Um, and this I'm is not sure I've ever read nonfiction by Anne Enright, and that is a that in it, in and of itself is a draw. I've only read nonfiction by her. I have yet to read one of her novels. I would be happy for one of you to tell me where to start. But every time I read an essay or come across yep. you know, a book review by her, I think she just has such a particular voice and such an incisive kind of savage sensibility. I sat on a panel with her at the wonderful Sydney Writers Festival. I mean, one of the happiest experiences I think we've collectively had as a podcast. And I am very ashamed to say I went into the panel knowing nothing about her and within two minutes of her opening her voice, I was like, okay, A, I should say very little to nothing uh, uh, and just listen. And B, this is, this, this is just a majestic, like, like kind of subtly majestic human being. And everything she says is worth taking extremely seriously, even though she is not at all self-serious. And then there's the additional charm of the music of the Irish, you know, accent and speech. Um, but she's she's really quite something. I mean, The Gathering is the one that won the Booker. Forgotten Waltz, I thought, was a, just a marvelous turn uh, on uh, an old theme of infidelity. I mean, I, she's just a remarkable writer. I mean, she could sort of write the phone book and you'd want to read it, but she does a lot of stuff, essayistic stuff for the London Review books. I hope someone is working on a selected Anne and Wright. She is a great, great contemporary writer. Uh, anyway, um, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you. Julia, thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. Find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's uh, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Tiresomely, I will repeat that uh, every week we get email that we really enjoy, really cherish, and always respond to. So please, we'd love to correspond. Uh, send us a note. Um, you can communicate with us on Twitter as well. We've got a feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. And for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We will see you in L.A. and Vancouver. Thank you.